If you're a regular listener of So to Speak, it's probably safe to say that you have an interest in the First Amendment. So you'll definitely want to check out the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education's First Amendment Library. The First Amendment Library is a free, ever-expanding, online database of First Amendment-related materials, articles, and more than 900 Supreme Court cases. Among the unique features of the First Amendment Library is its collection of the complete transcripts of comedian Lenny Bruce's obscenity trials. This is the first time ever that these documents have been made publicly available for free online. The library also hosts the papers of famed UCLA law professor Eugene Volk and features illustrated timelines of seminal events in First Amendment history, including a timeline for today's podcast topic, campaign finance. So to check out this one-of-a-kind resource about the First Amendment and its five freedoms, visit thefire.org or firstamendmentlibrary.com. Now on to the show. Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I'm your host, Nico Perino, and on today's show, we're going to take a deep dive into the murky and often confusing waters that are modern campaign finance law. Even within the First Amendment free speech community, there's some disagreements about what kinds of campaign finance regulations pass constitutional muster. Attorney Martin Garbus, who we spoke with in December, for example, doesn't think money spent on politics amounts to constitutionally protected speech. And he thinks the United States Supreme Court's decision in 2010 in the Citizens United case was wrongly decided. Our guest on today's podcast, however, is on the other side of that spectrum. Sam Gedge is an attorney with the Institute for Justice, which is a public interest law firm based out of Arlington, Virginia, that regularly challenges campaign finance restrictions in court. Perhaps most famously, IJ co-litigated the seminal speechnow.org v. FEC case, where in 2010, the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia held that limits on contributions to political action committees making independent expenditures are unconstitutional. This was the case that allowed for the creation of the so-called super PACs. Sam is a graduate of Harvard Law School, and before joining the Institute for Justice, he practiced election law at Wiley Rain LLP in Washington, D.C. He also clerked for a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. Sam is involved in litigating many of IJ's campaign finance lawsuits, and on today's show, he is going to tell us about some of those cases. But because campaign finance law can be so complicated, even for the most experienced of attorneys, I wanted to spend most of this podcast going over the basics of campaign finance regulation. For example, what laws exist at the state and federal levels? What are the most common arguments for and against restrictions on political expression? What are the major cases and what does the future hold for campaign finance in the era of Donald Trump? This podcast will be more or less a campaign finance for dummies podcast, if you will. And before we begin, full disclosure, I worked at the Institute for Justice for about a year or so, from 2014 to 2015, and I wanted to get that out of the way before we began here. Now, with that out of the way, let's dive into those aforementioned murky waters. 
All right, Sam, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Appreciate it. Yep. So let's get started here by just setting the landscape for our listeners. What sort of campaign finance regulations exist in the world? And let's look at it from a federal level and a state level. What does the federal government do to police speech or participation? I, I don't want to get into speech yet, but participation in elections. Sure. Um, well, you're right that what we're talking about here is speech, um, even though we, we use these technical terms like campaign finance. Uh, but, but at the federal level, what we're talking about is restrictions on what kind of, of political messages people can spend money on, who people can associate with, who they can give money to. Uh, as well as more recently, uh, we've been seeing increasing disputes over disclosure obligations. If you get involved in a political campaign, um, what do you need to, to disclose about yourself or about the people that you're associating with? So there's a number of ways then that people can participate in electoral politics other than running for office. So you said direct contributions to candidates is one. Um, they can um, give to these 501c4 groups. Uh, there's a lot of debate surrounding what those groups do and, and, and their influence on elections. Uh, but they can also um, create PACs or join together with other people to speak about these issues. Can you go through these one by one? So like, what are the limits right now if me, Nico Perino, want to contribute to election? Uh, federal election. Sure. Uh, so when we're talking about actually giving money to a candidate, I think at the federal level, it's something like 2600 bucks a year. That might be a little bit off. Um, but but more importantly, if you want to go out and spend money on your own or give money to someone else who wants to go spend money on their own, um, you're not subject to any limits. So, so the technical term is like independent expenditures or electioneering communications. The groups that engage in this kind of speech um, are right super PACs, um, which the Institute for Justice um, litigated into existence a few years ago. The Speech Now case from exactly. 2010. Exactly. That was at the D.C. Circuit, right? Yeah, and that came around the same time as Citizens United. What's the difference between, for our listeners, the difference between Speech Now and Citizens United? Right. So, well, Citizens United, of course, famously, famously said that, that the government doesn't have the right to stop people from spending money to talk about politics. And what the Speech Now case at the D.C. Circuit held just a couple of weeks after that was that, okay, well, if we can't stop, stop someone from spending their money uh, to talk about a candidate, we can't stop other people from joining together with that person uh, to talk about candidates. Essentially, if one person uh, can speak independently about politics, why can't a group of people, a group of neighbors, for example, uh, pool their resources and engage in that kind of, of activity? And the spending that they're doing here and the spending that the courts considered are called independent expenditures, right? And what that's sort of a jargony term in the campaign finance world. But for our lay listeners, what does that mean? Sure. So independent expenditures is a technical term. Uh, essentially, it means that uh, we're talking about speech. Uh, we're talking about political advertisements, newspapers, or, or TV ads that contain what are called magic words. Uh, vote for candidate X, vote against candidate Y. Um, kind of classic, explicitly electoral speech. Mm -hmm. And these... Are these independent expenditures coordinated with the campaign in any way? No. So, so the independent part of the term is that they, that they are independent. The, the thinking being that if you have an outside group that, that's working with a candidate to, to run ads helping that candidate, that's really no different from just giving the candidate money to run the ad himself. So, so you're giving the candidate money, and there are limits on that. But when you're not giving the candidate money— but you're talking about an election independent from coordination with that candidate. That's an independent expenditure, and there isn't limits. Spending, that, there aren't spending limits. That's exactly that. right. Ever since Citizens United, uh, nationwide, you can spend as much as you want um, talking for or against uh, candidates. And now let's get into this other question that you brought up about disclosure. 
So you can spend the money. The next question is, do other people in society have a right to know that you're spending this money? And how does the federal government right now draw a distinction uh, between when you need to tell the world essentially or disclose when you're spending money on politics and when you're not? Required to right, so so it's an incredibly baroque system. But 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 briefly, it, it really the amount of di- disclosure that you have to engage in depends on what kind of speaker you are. So uh, if you you team up with a bunch of people uh, and you pool your money to run an ad against a federal candidate, for example, uh, you might have to disclose all of all of the money that goes into that. Um, the, the thinking being that you've all kind of contributed explicitly with the goal of. of uh, running this particular ad. Um, if by contrast we're talking about a corporation like Coca-Cola, for example, wants to run an ad, uh, they don't have to disclose everybody who's bought a can of Coke in the past year or two. Um, it's a corporation. It's their own general treasury funds. Um, they probably won't be disclosing um, people who, the, the funding sources that they used. Mm-hmm. But um, so uh, if you're a super PAC, for example, you do need to disclose. Exactly. So, so a super PAC is just a, a fancy word basically for a group of people that, that join together uh, with, the, with the major purpose of trying to influence federal elections. Um, so uh, I, think, I think super PACs kind of get a, get a bad rap. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a, an unfavorable <laughs> term, but, but uh-huh. really that, that's what we're talking about. Um, it, just a, a group of people or uh, that, that, that might create a corporation or just act as just an unincorporated association uh, who want to put together their money and, and put out an ad. But, and you see a lot of discussion surrounding this term dark money. So these this is a way to contribute to a campaign, either directly or indirectly, depending on what your motives are. Um, through contributions to 501c4 organizations, these are nonprofits that are also allowed to engage in political activity so long as the majority of their activity is apolitical. Um, these group organizations aren't required to turn over their funding sources to the federal government. Typically not, that's correct. Um, so, so these are groups that may do a ton of things that have nothing to do with elections, but some of their spending might have to do with running an ad um, speaking for or against a candidate. Sierra Club, for example. Exactly. I'm not sure if they're a C4 or a C3, but, yeah. uh, but if, assuming they have like a political advocacy arm, that they might, yeah. they might well qualify. And when it comes to speech by those kinds of organizations, the, the campaign finance laws don't require them to disclose all of their donors. The thinking being that um, someone could have given money to the Sierra Club because they just care about the environment generally or they want to help a particular environmental cause, not that they want to support or oppose candidate X, who the Sierra Club uh, just happens to, to run an ad against. Yeah. The argument on behalf of the reformers, though, is that this is a vehicle by which really rich billionaires, for example, can give money to a nonprofit organization that can then use that money to support a political candidate. Right. That, that, that is the argument. Uh, I'm not sure how often that becomes a reality, but I think that goes to a more fundamental disagreement about, you know, why are we uh, conditioning people's right to associate to exercise their free speech rights on having to divulge, you know, their name, their political affiliation, their sympathies, their home addresses in some cases. Um, that, I think, is is the core disagreement when it comes to, to disclosure laws today. And you and I, Sam, we were talking before um – we started recording this podcast about freedom of association issues, and there there was some litigation surrounding this even before the ma- major you know, Buckley v. Vallejo um, decision in 1976 that we can get into. But you know, in 1958 and NAACP v. Alabama, right? That's exactly right. Um, and I mean, I think the NAACP cases in the 1950s were a very dramatic example of how compelling people to disclose their associations really could chill association, chill speech. I mean, there, there, was, there was serious violence going on back then. Um, 
I think the principles, though, have, have similar application when it comes to just association, political speech, political association more generally, even in 2017. Um, th- there's no question that uh, lots of people are sensitive about disclosing on the internet, you know, who they support politically, who they oppose politically, much less, you know, what their address is, what their name is, uh, who their employer is. Uh, but at the federal level, at the state level, um, very often that's a condition for someone who wants to contribute a very little amount of money to to a group, for example, that, that wants to, to run a political ad supporting or opposing a candidate. Yeah. You mentioned state level. So we talked just now about federal regulations of uh campaign finance or support uh, for candidates by by their supporters um, or by their detractors, because you can also spend money on politics in opposition of pe- uh, to people uh, or even not in opposition just as a, as a form of um, journalism, which was at, at uh, issue in Citizens United. Of course, the facts there were that this organization, Citizen United, uh, wanted to create a movie about Hillary Clinton leading up to the 2008 election. And... Um, Federal regulations at the time said that you can't you can't talk about a political candidate um, in this way. What was it, sixty or ninety days before an election? That's right. Yeah, and actually, I think that goes to kind of an, an interesting point that we haven't really touched on yet, which is we, we've been talking about people pooling their money to to speak explicitly for or against a particular candidate, but the federal laws are actually much broader than that, and we saw that in Citizens United. Uh, this is a concept called electioneering communications. Again, it, it's jargon that the campaign finance system is is full of jargon, um, but that basically means that for a group like Citizens United, which was a, a nonprofit group, um, they were categorically barred from from making a video, uh, publicizing a video about a, a very powerful politician uh, during a set period leading up to an election. Yeah, and the Citizens United, of course, famously in 2010, um, or the Supreme Court famously in 2010 said that um, this sort of restriction on speech surrounding election was unconstitutional. That's exactly right. Um, it's a controversial decision, obviously, but but the, but the principles really shouldn't be that controversial. I mean, we're talking about uh, whether whether an entity can be prevented uh, by law from from talking about a political uh, candidate, and the answer to that should obviously be that, that under the First Amendment they can't be. Yeah. So as I was going to get to this earlier, um, but state laws yes, are right. different. Yeah. Um, state laws. Um, sort of the Wild West in this case. Every state has different laws regulating political speech uh, within its territory. Some states have no uh, laws in certain areas, like uh, I believe Oregon, for example, has no limits on contributions to pol- political candidates. Um, I believe Missouri, and we're in Virginia right now, Virginia might have the same same um, the same thing. So what, what do you see at the state level as far as regulations of political speech goes? Well, the state regulations interesting because of the diversity of laws. I mean, as you mentioned, that there are states where there are no limits on contributions. Uh, even before Citizens United said that corporations can't be barred um, from from engaging in independent expenditures, from explicitly advocating for or against a candidate, you had I think almost half of the states already said that that corporations could do that anyway under state law, and that the sky didn't fall. Um, what makes state law regulations so challenging, though, I think, is that in many cases they simply kind of cannibalize bits and pieces of the federal system and kind of put them together in a mishmash at the state level. Um, And when we're talking about state campaigns or even local campaigns, which in a number of jurisdictions, uh, the laws drop down to that granular of a level, um, the the candidates aren't as legally sophisticated. They don't have these great war chests that federal candidates might have. And yet at the same time, they're oftentimes being subjected to the same kinds of very elaborate, complex legal regimes uh, that they're being expected to comply with. So how does this bear out in reality? 
So the Institute for Justice is a public interest law firm. You mentioned before that it participated in this uh, Speech Now case. What are some other cases that you're taking right now at the state or federal level that illustrate how these campaign finance regulations work out in practice? So we are currently litigating two cases in Colorado uh, involving Colorado state campaign finance laws. And I think that they both really uh, demonstrate how these laws can, can just chill ordinary people from talking about ordinary issues. Uh, so, so one of them involves a woman called Tammy Holland. Uh, she lives in a small town outside of Denver. Uh, she cares deeply about her child's education. Uh, so a couple of years ago, she took out a number of ads in her local newspaper. It's, it's a weekly newspaper, um, basically criticizing common core issues. And at one point, she runs an ad uh, about a month or so before the local school board election, uh, not taking a position on any particular candidate, but saying, you know, this election's coming up, telling her neighbors to educate themselves about all the candidates, cast an informed ballot. Um, she ended up getting sued. Uh, two times uh, by members of the school administration uh, who took offense at what they perceived as a veiled criticism uh, and wanted to force her to apologize. Uh, and that's kind of a unique uh, facet of Colorado's law, which is that you have this incredibly complicated system of campaign finance regulation, and literally any person uh, can act as, as a speech vigilante and file a, a campaign finance complaint and prosecute anybody else uh, alleging any violation of these state laws. Uh, and when these people have these complaints filed against them because they're in violation of a state's campaign finance law, I mean, are these expensive things to sort out on behalf of the the defendant, uh, so to speak, in these cases? Absolutely. I mean, there's a, there's an enormous pressure to, to hire a lawyer. I mean, Tammy Holland's not a campaign finance expert. Uh, most people who end up being sued, especially at the state level, aren't campaign finance experts. They're campaign treasurers or often volunteers. Uh, they, they, these aren't know, legally sophisticated people. There's no reason for them to be. Uh, so they get a complaint in the mail saying that you've had this, essentially this legal proceeding instituted against you, oftentimes by your political opponent. Um, you're going to lawyer up and that costs money. Um, and in fact, in Colorado, and I'm just returning to Colorado because, yeah. because I'm most familiar with it and also because I think it just exemplifies just how badly campaign finance laws can go wrong. Uh, but you see these, these enforcement systems being used explicitly uh, to try to suppress political speech, to try to shake people down for money. Um, so in a very real sense, uh, these laws, campaign finance laws, which are designed in theory to combat corruption, are themselves uh, becoming a tool for speech suppression uh, and corruption itself. The, when the, the legislators created these laws, was this the intention, do you think? I, I think it cannot have been the intention. Um, yeah. So in, in Colorado, just just as a caveat, um, these laws were were passed by referendum. Uh, so a, a majority or a supermajority of the Colorado population uh, voted these laws, uh, in many cases, into the state constitution itself. Um, so you have all of these unexpected consequences 10 or 15 years later, and it's very hard to address them except um, through litigation, which is why we brought, in that case, a, a federal court action challenging this really um, abuse-prone enforcement system. I have to think, I mean, I'm thinking in my mind right now, uh, of parallels between these these campaign finance laws in Colorado, for example, and also just libel laws that anti-slap statutes uh, were put in place in many states to to fight against. The idea being that you know defamation law here in the United States it's really hard for a plaintiff to prevail, um, but if you are a uh, citizen and there was another citizen or maybe a newspaper news outlet that's critical of you, you don't like that. Uh, and you don't want to fight it out in the marketplace ideas, but you rather fight it out in the court of law. You have uh, this vehicle through defamation law where you can just make the process the punishment. The idea that you file a lawsuit, they have to lawyer up, 
spend money to do it. And while you might not prevail, you will sort of screw them over, taking time and money away. Uh, and so you have states that pass anti-slap laws, slap meaning I think it's strategic litigation against public participation. It sounds like in this case, a Tammy Holland, I believe her name was, um, is trying to participate uh, publicly in, in the most basic way and was prevented from doing that, you know, as a result of, I don't know, I can't speak to whether these lawsuits are frivolous or not, but they, I see the parallel there. Is that? I, I think I think that's a perfect analogy. I mean, Colorado's example is kind of a perfect example of what happens when the First Amendment isn't forefront in the minds of the people who are passing laws that, that really apply only to core First Amendment activity. Um, just to give one example, we, we have this uh, a guy in Colorado who in the past few years has filed between, I think, 60 and 70 of these campaign finance complaints. Uh, and he's done so with the avowed mission of waging what he calls political guerrilla legal warfare uh, against disfavored viewpoints. Are those his, his actual words? That, that's a quote, um, <laughs> the political guerrilla legal warfare part. Um, so so, so it, it's obviously a, a tool for speech suppression. And, and without safeguards um, that, are, that honor people's First Amendment rights, it will obviously be very tempting. Uh, for people to use this tool rather than debate someone who they disagree with on the merits. Mm -hmm. And what are some of these laws that actually, so we have people like this man um, who files 60 complaints, uh, what, uh, you know, for violations against campaign What are some of these laws? I mean, um, I, I believe I recall some IJ cases, and during my time at IJ, I helped work on some of these cases where you have a group of citizens joining together to talk about a political issue. It might be a candidate or it might be an election, but often it could be like a, a ballot issue referendum. Um, and they want to spend $200 on yard signs and they need to form this whole apparatus to surround it, um, essentially creating bureaucratic red tape that, you know, if you're just going to stand at the street corner and wave signs dealing with, uh, you know, a school funding measure, you might not want to, you might not want to deal with the, the BS that accompanies it. Right, right. And that's what so much of, of campaign finance regulation is now, not not just in Colorado. Um, but, but just to give, give an example of the kinds of cases that, that we see in that state, I mean, there, there's a, a requirement that if you receive more than $100 in contributions from a particular person, uh, you have to disclose not just their name and address, uh, but also their occupation and employer. Uh, and lots of people, you know, don't know the occupation and employer of a, someone who gives them 101 bucks, right? Uh, they don't realize it's a requirement. Um, so you time and again, you see people getting sued, hauled into court, um, required to attend court hearings, uh, simply because they, they disclose someone's name, someone's address, the amount of money they received, but they didn't say that, you know, they work at CBS. Um, again, we're talking about disclosure, but really, does that added bit of information really inform anybody's vote? And I, if I recall correctly, some states don't limit the sort of disclosure to just money. It can also be in-kind contributions as well. Like, let's say I'm hosting a rally on the street corner where we're going to, as I said, maybe be for, uh, for or against a school funding measure. If I spend money and drive the group there, do I need to disclose that I spent $42 on gas. Right. So in, in many, many instances, the answer to that would be yes. Um, and, and, and we're litigating uh, a case where, where the question is whether in-kind contributions can include legal services uh, that are used to help people comply with the campaign finance laws to begin with. So you're finding people in a catch-22, and again, this just happens to be in Colorado, a uh, catch-22 where, where people are being subjected to campaign finance complaints. Uh, they can't afford to hire a lawyer, so they take on a pro bono lawyer, a lawyer for free or a reduced cost lawyer. Um, and then they end up getting sued again because someone's saying that, oh, well, that's, a, that's an illegal contribution of legal services. Um, so it really is just kind of this, this cycle of, of abusive litigation. And, and the end result, of course, is that, that people just are dissuaded from engaging in, in political advocacy. What do you, how, does, how do the courts wrestle 
with the distinction between a private citizen um, and you know, a journalist in this case. So you have these campaign finance regimes set up in certain states, or uh, the case of Citizens United with the federal government, where you have private citizens speaking on these issues, but you also have journalists saying the exact same thing as private citizens. Is a journalist who's writing about the school board, for example, are they required to disclose you know, their political activities as well if they're, they're writing as political? Right. So, so the answer yeah, typically is, is no. And, and that really underscores kind of what a jigsaw regime this is. Um, so and, have, and why is that? Is it because the laws carve out well, well, the notion is that, that freedom of the press is, is different from, from freedom of speech by ordinary citizens. Um, but, that, but that also leads us to, to really bizarre situations where you have these enormous media organizations that um, everyone seems to accept have a particular political bent. Uh, and they can spend just millions and millions of dollars uh, talking about candidates, uh, talking about political issues, which is great. That's their right. Um, but at the same time, you have just ordinary citizens and people who don't happen to be part of the press, uh, however that's defined, um, are, are the being subject to disclosure, burdensome disclosure laws. Uh, until Citizens United, they might be barred outright from, from talking about politics at all. So I want to move now because we've, we've, we've called electioneering communications or communications about elections speech. Um, I think you and I probably agree on this issue, but there's a lot of people who disagree on this issue and say money isn't speech. Um, what corporations do to meddle in the elections isn't speech; it's um, you know something else. It's uh, they also like to say that you know allowing for unlimited spending on elections gives all the power to the richest in society. So, but let's start with that first question, and, and let's dig into some of these arguments against limited regulation on campaign speech. Why is the use of money in elections? Should it be? Why should it be considered speech? Right. Well, I think think about it this way: if you want to get your message out, whatever that message is, whether it's political or, or not political, it's probably going to cost you money to do that. Uh, whether you want to run a newspaper article, whether you want to publish a book, a novel, an advocacy book, and whether you want to run a political ad. Uh, so, just as the government couldn't say, you know, you're free uh, to write a book, but you can't spend any money actually printing it. Um, the government also can't say, you know, you're free to talk about politics. You just can't spend any money running an ad or publishing a, a newspaper advertisement. Uh, it's not that that money, like the currency, is speech, but it's just that if you prevent someone from speaking, uh, from using money to speak, uh, that in many cases is the same as preventing them from speaking at all. What do, what do you say then to the argument that this allows people, the richest in societies, the Charles and David Cokes of the world, undue influence in the elections. Uh, the idea that their voices, because they have more money, are heard more loudly and that they can, quote unquote, buy an election. Right. So so we, we hear a lot that, that allowing for you know money and speech, allowing for unfettered political discourse somehow leads to, to people buying elections. But, but, but what are we actually talking about? We're talking about people speaking about politics. And the concern, it seems, is that what they say might persuade people enough that it affects how they cast their vote. Uh, that's precisely what the First Amendment is meant to protect. We're not, we shouldn't be scared of speech because it might persuade someone. Uh, we should protect speech uh, because it might persuade someone. And we should have mentioned this earlier, but it's important to note that the, the courts have drawn distinctions between spending money in support of a politician 
and giving money to a politician to do a certain thing, correct? That, that's right. So, so both, you know, both activities have certain First Amendment protection, but the Supreme Court's kind of drawn this very jagged line between contributions, between giving money to a candidate, and between expenditures, which is going out and spending your own money on a political ad, or in Tammy Holland's case, you know, like a, a newspaper advertisement. Uh, the thinking being that that giving money to a politician does have does enjoy First Amendment protections to a degree because you're essentially publicly associating yourself with that with that candidate's views. That that's First Amendment activity. Um, but for for better or for worse, uh, the court said that that's somehow less uh, less First Amendmenty than actually going out and, and speaking directly. What about this the the quid pro quo thing that I mentioned though? The idea that um, I am voter uh, X and I give politician Y a Lamborghini. Uh, you know, is that is that political speech? Right. Well, so so the main uh, with the with the hope that that politician will then pass a law that supports my business. Or... Right. Um, so that sounds shady. Uh, <laughs> but but it, it's also... I don't, can't afford a Lamborghini, <laughs> so I'm not going to go out and do that. Right. Uh, but but um, but it's also almost certainly illegal under existing bribery statutes. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a bribe. Well, your that hypothetical sounds yes. a lot like a bribe to me, yeah. Um, and that's not what we're talking about here, right? And we're not even talking about you kind of you going out and, and giving money to your buddy, the politician. Where we're uh-huh. talking about giving money to a political campaign, uh-huh. um, so that that campaign can advance a political message that that you agree with. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk then about arguments in favor of disclosure. This uh, there's a popular argument that says that um, if we disclose who's participating in an election through contributions to a candidate or to a PAC or to even a 501c4 group, that we are creating information for other voters uh, to to find and then base their votes on that. The idea being that if I know who contributes to the Sierra Club's um, political activities, then I also I can derive some information for that because if – the, they're all environmental activists. I know that Sierra Club's support of this candidate is probably a good thing. Um, what do you say to the idea that disclosure creates more information for the voter and is therefore a valuable thing in the marketplace of ideas? Right. So, so a, a couple of, of points. I mean, the, the classic argument for disclosure is right. The Justice Brandeis, Brandeis quote that you know sunlight is is the best of disinfectants. Um, but 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 there are a couple of problems with that. The first that the notion that disclosure is just a general good. Uh, might be true or false, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a legitimate government interest to force people to disclose their personal information as the price of admission, as the price of, of engaging in political advocacy. If, if listeners think that the identity of a speaker's supporters is relevant, uh, then they're free, of course, to discount that speech if the person hasn't been forthcoming about about who's supporting them. Um, but that, that doesn't, to my mind, it doesn't translate to, to the kinds of uh, really expansive disclosure regimes that are imposed on people by law. So has there been any evidence, if that's an argument cited, that the average voter actually goes and spends a meaningful amount of time looking at who's donating to a PAC or to contributing to a candidate? Is, is that what something they would base their votes on? Or is that some, you know, in the ideal world, We'd have the this super well informed voter who would take that information into account, right? I mean, I think it's it's highly unlikely that that really anyone, not many people, are going onto state or the FEC donor rolls and scrolling through thousands of cells looking at who gave two hundred bucks to who. Um, the thinking, I guess, is is that that the press does that and that you have news reports that kind of distill this information. Um, but again, it's. It, 
it's not all that clear that this information has much, if anything, to do with the voters' ultimate decision. Um, in, in large part, we're taking it on faith, uh, and we're just accepting that people people think as a general matter that disclosure is good, that we like disclosure. Uh, and based on these kinds of amorphous uh, ideas that, that this is somehow a good thing, uh, that's translated into using the coercive power of government uh, to really intrude on people's First Amendment rights. Now, so we've talked a little bit about um, individual contributions uh, we've, and whether money is speech. We've talked a little bit about disclosure. Let's talk about what actually happens in practice. Do you think it is even possible to buy a vote? Like, do you believe that it is possible for Charles Koch to spend so much money that he then um, essentially forces a, someone to vote for his his candidate of choice? Um, or is there something that stands between Charles Koch's spending or, as we've talked about here, um, public advocacy speaking and the actual election of a candidate? Right. Well, the main thing that stands between those two things is, is the autonomy and the decision-making power of each individual voter. Uh, again, when we talk about buying elections, we're talking about people listening to an ad, seeing an ad, uh, and either rolling their eyes if they don't find it persuasive, or, or maybe they think, you know, that this ad makes a good point. Maybe I should look into this candidate more, and they, they find something persuasive. I mean, uh, again, that, that seems like a cardinal good that the First Amendment is supposed to protect. Uh, and whether more ads might make a particular more speech might make might make a particular ad more persuasive uh, i don't know but but ultimately i don't think we should be afraid uh that we're having too much speech uh about about politics so would you say then that we don't spend enough money on politics well uh, i'm speaking to you personally <laughs> sam not of course and uh speaking for the institute for justice here but if if i mean it it, it goes without saying that if you believe that money is speech or that the spending of money on on um, political advocacy as speech or represents speech, then more money spent on that is a good thing if you believe more speech is good is good for society as a whole, right? Well, I, I think as a, as a general matter, that, that sounds reasonable. Uh -huh. uh, not that we should necessarily be, of course, not forcing people to talk about course, politics, yeah. but, but if people want to spend millions of dollars saying that candidate X is a great guy or candidate Y is a bad guy, you know, why are we afraid of that? Let them do it. If you don't want to listen to them, you know, turn the channel. Yeah. Now, the United States does have some unique laws. I don't, I don't know that they're unique laws, but it does prohibit foreigners from spending money on our elections. Am I correct? That's right. So so part of the, the federal campaign finance law is that, that foreign foreign nationals cannot engage in independent expenditures. Uh, they can't make contributions to, to federal candidates. I think that also drops down to, to the state level as well. Um, more troubling, though, is that these laws also extend to to people, foreigners who are living in the United States legally, uh, green card holders, for really? example. Right. Um, and just as a general matter, people in the United States who are green card holders, uh, for instance, are entitled to full First Amendment protection, full constitutional protection. Um, nonetheless, though, the courts have held that, that these these folks can be singled out um, and really barred from, from engaging in certain parts of the political process. So, that, so that's interesting because the courts, I mean, in recent history is that if green card holders have full First Amendment protections and the courts are holding that uh, speech spent on election is elections is protected by the First Amendment, you would you would seem to think that they would have this right to participate. Right. Um, you it's would. a special carve out for now green holders uh, just dealing with 
political speech. Uh, essentially, yes. Um, there was a case a few years ago here in, in D.C. where I think it was a, a green card holder who was originally from Canada. I think she worked at a big law firm up in New York. Uh, wanted, I think, to distribute pamphlets uh, advocating about a federal campaign. Uh, the, the district court said, well, it, it's constitutional uh, for the federal government to prevent you from doing that. Uh, and the Supreme Court um, either summarily affirmed it or, or declined to hear the case at all. Is there any evidence that Candidates who spend more money generally win elections, or you might not know this off the top of your head, um, or is it, you know, because I've heard the argument that oh, the candidate who spends the most money is going to win a, an election, or the candidate that has the big receives the most campaign contribution or has the biggest war chest is going to win. But is that is that causal connection confused by the fact that most candidates who have more money are incumbents? who have the name recognition to win the elections already or have a upper hand in the elections already. Right. So, so I'm, I'm not sure if there is a correlation and to the extent there is. I think there, there's probably a lot of different factors that, mm-hmm. that go into it. Um, but one thing I'll note, though, is that uh, a study was done by the California Fair Political Practices Commission probably about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, this presumably is a reformer group of some. Yeah, yeah it's, the, it's the, the group that essentially enforces Colorado. Colorado oh, okay. oh, sorry. California uh, campaign. <laughs> We've been focusing like, a lot on Colorado <laughs> right, right now. So. Yeah. Uh, going a little bit further west o- yeah. over to California. Um, and, and this study talked about like all of these these massive uh, spenders when it comes to independent advocacy in California. Uh, but when you took a closer look, it turns out that many of the campaigns that these big spenders were spending on uh, ended up losing, uh, which suggests that, you know, maybe if you have like uh, the folks behind Walmart spending to, to advocate for your campaign, then that's not a, a slam dunk that you're going to end up winning. Yeah. Is there any evidence that in these states where because one of the main arguments, and we should probably say this because uh, we didn't say it earlier, for these campaign finance regulations is corruption. They root out corruption. You know, uh, the more money you have in politics, the more it corrupts a politician's motives and prevents them from having a public-spirited um, term of public service. Um, but is there any evidence in these states that don't have contribution limits like Oregon or Missouri or Virginia that those states are more corrupt? I don't. I don't think. Not, not that I'm aware of. I mean, Virginia obviously had had a kind of a, a big issue with their governor receiving gifts a few years ago. Yeah. Um, but but it just as a broader matter, no. And I and I think that that really undercuts the notion that there is this link between you know robust political participation, whether it's through independent advocacy or, or giving contributions to candidates, and, and corruption. And I, and I think the way that regulators get around that is by saying that this isn't just to combat corruption, uh, but it's to combat the appearance of corruption. That's pretty amorphous. I mean, what's the appearance of corruption? Uh, so in the past, you've seen cases where, where governments say, you know what, we don't actually have proof that, that contributions in our state have done anything uh, to corrupt anybody. Uh, but we took this survey where a bunch of people think that it would. And the courts have said, well, that sounds like the appearance of corruption to us. Uh, that's good enough. And so the argument there then is that people need to have faith in their government. And even if they deeply distrust their government, and that distrust is unfounded with any empirical evidence. Like we still need to consider that, right? That, that that's exactly right. Uh, but in this case, it's at the cost of people's ability to speak out, right? And that's what makes campaign finance laws such an anomaly when it comes to to First Amendment doctrine more broadly, because the, the First First Amendment rights are, are, are among the most traditionally highly protected of the rights embodied in the the Bill of Rights, uh, and 
and typically when the government wants to infringe your First Amendment rights, it's not enough that they just speculate about a harm to be avoided. They have to actually come into court uh, and they carry the burden of proof to demonstrate with admissible evidence that these laws are actually serving a, a government interest. Uh, but time and again in, in the campaign finance sphere, uh, it's almost good enough for government work. You're talking about uh, the appearance of corruption. Now, that's yeah. not that's, that's basically speculation in many cases. So we were talking just now about um, you know whether money can win someone an election. We just got done with an election, and Donald Trump won, of course. He's been in office now for something like 60-plus days. Um, and he was vastly outspent by Hillary Clinton. Uh, you've seen examples of this previously uh, with Eric Cantor, for example, who was a majority leader of Virginia, losing to an upstart Tea Party candidate in the state, despite Eric Cantor being a prolific fundraiser. Um, so that, that, I think, is a data point that it would be pretty convincing, this idea that what stands between a messenger with a large war trust and the, the winning of the election is this voter. And if how they want to spend their war chests uh, doesn't convince the voter, then you're, you're still going to lose an election. Hillary Clinton can spend as much money as she wants, but she's not convincing, for example, rural America right. her message matters. Right. And I think examples like that do really drive home that, you know, there's, there's not this, this correlation. You know, voters aren't just automatons. If they see enough ads or expensive enough ads, they're going to go out and cast their ballot the way that these, like, dark money groups want them to do it. People... Many people probably have made up their minds before they see the ads at all. Yeah. To the extent they haven't, you know, they, you know, people, people are, are smart. They, they can figure things out. They know if someone's a phony or someone's not a phony in, in the ideal case. And, um, <laughs> and, and in any event, they, of course, have, have the ability to determine who they think will serve their interests and the country's interests best. Yeah. Speaking of Donald Trump, let's move on now um, to how the campaign finance landscape might change in the future. Campaign finance, while it was a top-of-the-mind issue in 2010 after Citizens United, and for a couple of years after that, of course, you had Obama famously chastised Supreme Court justices during the State of the Union address. It's not a top-of-the-mind issue right now um, where immigration and health care reform uh, and tax issues are, are sort of dominating the headlines. But Donald Trump himself has said that he's in favor of campaign finance reform, that there's too much money in politics. Is there any concern that, you know, the gains made from the free speech side on these issues will be rolled back under his administration? And talk a little bit about Neil Gorsuch, because I, his opinions on these matters sort of diverge with Donald Trump's, so far as we know. Right. Um, so, so President Trump, I think, at least once has suggested that that he disagreed with the Citizens United decision. Mm -hmm. um, that, of course, is cause for concern. Hillary Clinton also disagreed with it. I mean, she was the <laughs> subject of the movie at, at issue there. Um, at the same time, though, it seems unlikely that a Supreme Court would just overrule Citizens United. The reason being that I can't think of any case where the Supreme Court ha has overruled a precedent in a way that 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 restricts someone's constitutional rights. Uh, we, we see the Supreme Court expand rights all the time, uh, but very rarely do they do they take a precedent that that, that protected First Amendment rights more strongly and, and hemmed it in to protect First Amendment rights uh, less solicitously, which essentially would be what would, would happen if, if Citizens United were overruled. And was Citizens United, you'll have to refresh my memory on this, was that a 5-4 decision? It was. was it a divided? And um, what were some of the dissenting arguments there then that might point to how you could restrict um, these 
these uh, the political speech in the future. Right. So Justice Stevens wrote uh, an incredibly long dissenting opinion, which I have to admit I haven't read recently. Uh, it's like about a hundred pages long. <laughs> this isn't a test. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but the arguments are, are are what we've discussed. You know yeah. that that um, that there's this this overwhelming interest in people having faith in our, in our government, and that in that case, just letting other people or other entities uh, talk about politics uh, was somehow so corrosive uh, to to the system itself. Um, that, that, that justifies uh, banning speech during a certain kind of no free speech window, 60 days before an election, for example. Um, again, I, I, think, I think the longer that Citizens United remains on the books and we see that you know, the sky isn't falling when, we, when there's more political ads, um, the, the harder it will be uh, to, to, to plausibly argue that First Amendment rights should be dialed back by overruling that decision. And, and the Roberts Court has, for its almost entire term, been good on you know, from a free speech perspective on campaign finance issues. Uh, That's right. I mean, we had the McCutcheon case, which involved um, contributions, uh, aggregate. 2014. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, Another 5-4 decision or 4-4-1 decision, I guess, Uh more technically. Um, So, so yeah, I I think there's reasons to be optimistic, at least when it comes to to issues about whether you have the right to speak about politics. Uh, When it comes to disclosure laws, Paradoxically, maybe the the Supreme Court's been a lot less concerned with the chilling effects that requiring people to to disclose their home address and their names and their political affiliations uh, might have. Mm-hmm. So, by by way of closing, then you're optimistic that things will keep moving in the direction that they are moving right now, at least as far as uh, you know political speech goes. Uh, disclosure being a separate issue. Right. I, I think that I think that's a fair characterization. Yeah. All right. I know you're a busy man and you've got a meeting here coming up, but just by way of closing, is there anything you can recommend to our listeners if they're interested in learning more about these issues, a book, an article, a um, movie? Sure. Uh, well, one book that springs to mind, it's just a pretty old now, I think maybe 10 or 15 years, is a book by Brad Smith called Unfree Speech. Uh, Mr. Smith was a, a commissioner, I think the chair of the Federal Election Commission uh, a while back. Uh, he provides a pretty compelling critique of, of many of the justifications that, that underpin campaign finance laws. Yeah, and he was a founder, I believe, of the Center for Competitive Politics, another organization that works on these issues. And I, I think partnered with the Institute for Justice on Speech Now, if, that, I, if that's I'm exactly not mistaken. Right. All right. Well, Sam, I appreciate you coming on. I, I, hopefully for our listeners, we've, we've worked through this issue, this complicated issue of campaign finance methodically, and, and that we know more now than we did uh, 43 minutes ago. Sam, thank you so much. All right. Thank you. That was attorney Sam Gedge from the Institute for Justice. To learn more about Sam and the Institute for Justice, you can visit ij.org. Again, that is ij. And to learn more about the history of campaign finance regulation in the United States, if you can't get enough, check out FIRE's First Amendment Library, where we have a detailed timeline of important moments in the history of campaign finance. You can find that timeline over at firstamendmentlibrary.com. That is firstamendmentlibrary.com. And you can click on timelines on the right-hand side to find the campaign finance timeline specifically. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us feedback at sotospeakatthefire.org, or leave a voicemail with a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. Again, that is 215-315-0100. And until next time, thanks everyone again for listening.